Hiya, welcome along to the latest episode from the High Performance Podcast where we speak to leading artists, entrepreneurs, business people and sports stars from across the planet to tap into their mindset to help you live a more high performance life and today we speak to a lion. In fact, we don't just speak to a lion, we speak to a man who led the lions. Today, we're in conversation with the brilliant Sir Ian McGeegan. It sort of came from my own experience of the support I got um, at different stages in my life as a player and a coach. You know, um, a father who put £5 in my pocket when I was still at school as an 18-year-old so that I could buy the rounds and and stand at the bar after a game and 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 still buy around with everybody else. Um, what I didn't know until after he died was he he had to walk to work the last two days of the week because he'd no money. So that motivation is I would never do anything second rate. Yeah, stick with us for what is going to be a really interesting conversation today. There's loads of takeaways from this. And actually, there's a few things I wrote down after our conversation with Sir Ian that I have on my desk right now. But I won't tell you what those are. I'll, I'll let you work out for yourself what are the big takeaways. Um, but actually, there was a big takeaway for me this week, and it is about thinking big and being ambitious. Um, you might or you might not know that um, about a decade ago, I founded a production company called The Whisper Group. And we, we're doing okay. We've got about 150 people. We've got offices right across the world. COVID was challenging for us because we produce lots of live sports. But I'm so proud of it because we created it from nothing. And one of the things that we produce is Channel 4's Formula One coverage. And when we won the contract, we went to Channel 4 and said to them, one day we'll get you Tom Cruise to be on the Channel 4 programme. And it was an ambition of ours and it has taken the last few years of constant phone calls, constant meetings, constant dreaming. But finally, if you were watching Channel 4's coverage of Formula One over the weekend from Silverstone, you would have seen Tom Cruise featuring on the programme. Um, it was an amazing day's filming with Tom singing, you've lost that loving feeling. One lucky member of the team managed to walk away with the um, the sunglasses that he was wearing on the shoot and he insisted on a photo with every member of the team. He was absolute class from start to finish. And there were some big takeaways actually from working with him everyone at whisper just said man attention to detail not putting up with average pushing things until they're at their absolute best um but i think the biggest takeaway was that he was just a really really nice bloke and i think it's a good reminder that no matter what you've achieved in life how far up the ladder you've got there's no excuse for not having manners or not being a quality person so just a quick thanks really to Tom Cruise for the time he spent with us at Whisper. Um, I know he was impressed with how we operated, but we were absolutely impressed with him. And I think there's a lesson there that if you have a dream, no matter how big or how ridiculous it seems, stick with it and it might just come true because that's what happened for us with Tom Cruise. And, and I'm pretty sure if you go to like the Channel 4 Formula 1 um, Instagram or Twitter or obviously go to the, the Channel 4 uh, player, you can... You can find that the feature we, we made with Tom as part of our build-up to um, the Formula One Grand Prix this weekend. So thanks, Tom, and well done to all the team at Whisper involved in that. Before we get going with the episode, we've got some other big news this week, which is that we are revealing the cover for the first ever book from the High Performance Podcast, Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best. All you have to do is head on Tuesday. If you listen to this on Monday, I'm talking about tomorrow, if you're listening to this 
after Monday, then basically right now, head to me on Instagram, go to Liquid Thinker, which is Damien, go to High Performance and you will see the image right there. Um, And actually, if you click the link in the description for this podcast, you can be one of the first to pre-order the new book from High Performance, which is very exciting. Right, I think it's time to crack on. Straight after this, you will hear today's High Performance Podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Uh, before we get going, I just want to do, of course, as usual, a shout out to our founding partner, Lotus Cars. Man, I've had a lot of people sending me messages on Instagram this week about Lotus. You may have seen that last weekend, Damon and I went down to Goodwood. We recorded um, a live episode of the High Performance Podcast with Jensen Button, which will be coming your way uh, before too long. But more than that, they launched the Lotus Emira, which is their brand new car, which will be available. Well, it's actually available to order now, but it will be on the road in 2022. And it is stunning um thanks to all the people who sent me messages asking if i can get them 10 percent off some person actually either in fact a colleague of mine dicky i might as well name him he messaged me to ask if i could get him 50 percent off the new lotus uh sadly not um but you can just check out lotuscars.com or go to at lotuscars across social media and you can see why there's been so much excitement across my social media about the new lotus emirana Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. Now, everyone needs a professor in their life and mine is also an author and an expert in the success of sporting teams, Damien Hughes. Look, Damien, you've done plenty of work in rugby. People love those conversations. Our chat with Johnny Wilkinson is one of our most popular episodes. But today, we're going to talk to a man who was at the pinnacle of a team made up only of players who had also reached the pinnacle. So I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I am too, Jake. When people talk about creating high-performing teams or cultures, they often talk about the physics and the chemistry. One is the physics is about how you put the teams together and the chemistry is how those pieces then work together. And our guest today is somebody that's done that incredibly successfully at all levels of his industry, whether that was as a player, as a coach and as a director of the sport. So I think it's going to be rich uh, and incredibly illuminating. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Let's do it then and welcome a man who had a distinguished rugby career. But what we're really excited to learn are the lessons he picked up when he became a leader. Um, Scotland, Northampton Saints, Wasps, Bath. He led them all, yet his time with the Lions is perhaps what defines him the most because getting the best from the very best and taking those players to someone else's backyard and using every trick in the book to leave with that taste of victory is such a difficult thing to achieve yet he did it time and time again so how can his lessons and his learnings be applied to your life listening to this welcome to high performance sir ian mcgeehan hi jake damien Good to be speaking to you. Well, let's get straight on with it then. In your eyes, Sir Ian, what is high performance? I think it's the ability to 
win under pressure um, and see the winning decisions that have to be made um, to actually complete a performance. And, and um, being able to do that consistently and recognise that, I, I think, leads then to players seeing the most in themselves and bringing the most out of themselves, but most importantly, bringing the most out of each other, which when, as a coach, was the greatest satisfaction I ever felt when um, you watch players who are actually doing that and it's the chemistry between them that is actually changing the environment. You see, what I like about that answer immediately is that you don't equate high performance to you doing all the work. You equate it to you allowing or facilitating others to be the best they can be. I was um, obviously trained as a school teacher um, and actually learned a bit there about sharing ideas and you know, I don't have all the answers, um, never have had. Uh, but what I, when I was coming through, I suppose, as a player and then as a coach is I got so much help and support from other people who had uh, knowledge that I didn't have that actually helped me shape my thinking. And, and I always said it to the players that no one person has all the answers, but the answers are often in the room. Uh, and a collective intelligence of a group of people who are pe- prepared to share everything um, and, and their own knowledge, they will have things that nobody else actually necessarily knows in that context. Sure. And once you get that on the table, then you have a, a conversation and, and I think a development in thinking that actually takes you forward and... Um, that's the bit I really enjoyed. And then having got that, you 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 re- really look at the key elements that simplify how you want to work that collectively to get it on the field in a consistent way. I love that idea of getting the collective intelligence working in harmony. But what precedes it is the bit that really interests me. For people to feel free to speak up, they need to feel psychologically safe and to have that trust that their ideas are going to be received in the right way. So how do you go about creating those two elements? <laughs> well, I think you've got to have um, individual conversations with players um, and get to know them a little bit, understand them. Um, you know, one thing with, with my education background is people learn in different ways and people talk about information in different ways. And it was being able to just understand the best ways sometimes of communicating with a player. And part of that might be trying to put a picture in his head of what they could be capable of or what they were capable of uh, and ways of getting there. And I think in, you know, in rugby, if you look at what you're doing and what you're capable of doing and you see the impact that that can have on somebody else or another group, uh, then you're actually setting a train of thinking going where what you're looking at is the impact by changing what you're doing or adjusting what you're doing uh, and that impact that is having on the performance of 
everyone collectively. Uh, and I think a pl- if a player um, will give you feedback about how he's feeling or if if he's got some concerns even or something's not clear, you know, the best some of the best information I can get is when a player says, look, I don't quite understand that. Why? And you, you're going through um, that understanding. Uh, and sometimes you vary the skills or the, or the involvement, but actually putting it then into context of doing something to make it clear to the player so he, so he has that understanding. But most importantly, if there isn't that understanding, then... I get that information from him very early. So we're not trying to develop something where we've got all these loose ends of misunderstanding, which tend to, you know, confuse things. Uh, and try and just get that simplicity of saying, look, this is, this is where we are, uh, this is where you are, if we do this, this suddenly allows the next thing to happen, which impacts on the team performance. Uh, and often it is under pressure. I, you know, I've called it world-class basics, that each position or each role has certain skills that are very specific to that role. Um, and that's often the selection of why that person is there, why, why that player is there, that he has skills he has an attitude and his approach that makes a difference to that position. But by doing that and by taking that on, you then have an understanding of what happens within the players next to you and the group that's two passes away from you. And so building that collective understanding of the impact of, of what you can do under pressure. And often it's the basics. It's actually delivering something that you know you can do or needs to be done to actually makes a difference when it matters. It's not show. It's actually impact on performance. And that, to me, is elite performance because it's actually changing what everybody can do and how everybody can operate at their maximum. So could you give a, a specific example, then, Ian, of those conversations that you've had with somebody where you've been able to uh, to come up with a shared objective that they've then gone out and executed under pressure? Well, I, I suppose I could go back to um, my Northampton days with Matt Dawson as a youngster who was a very natural running high-involvement scrum half with a very good pass. Now, we tend to overrun, so everybody just kept an eye on him because ultimately there'd be a turnover because they were waiting for him. And I, I just said, look, let's try and build a game where actually I want you, you to have your hands on the ball four or five occasions without anything happening other than your passing. And I said, wait for the moment where people then forget about you and that's the time to break. And it might only be two halves at twice in a game, in a half. But, but actually when it happens... It's devastating and and have the patience to say pass, pass. Because I said the next thing is if you keep passing, I said there's another breakdown, there's another opportunity for you by passing, not by running all the time. And we, we worked through that and, and um, you know, he, I mean, he took it on board and 
you know, with England and with the Lions, he just became an outstanding number nine because he varied what he did and when he did it. Love it. I'm still thinking about world-class basics right here. I'm reprogramming my whole life to deliver world-class basics. I'm good at the basics. It's the world-class that I need to work on. Um, look, Ian, when I think about your brilliant career, um, I suppose maybe it's the recency effect, really, but I think often about the speeches that were captured on camera when you were leading the Lions. And what I love about those speeches was how you got to the, the heart of those players, not the head. And you've just given us a very specific rugby example there of when you impacted someone's career. But I'm so interested in how you connected with the players on the emotional level. So those speeches that I've seen you deliver, did you write those yourself? Or did you take counsel from other people to, to work out what to say? Were they written in advance? Were they off the cuff? No, I mean, it came out of the environment, really, at any point you sort of looking at what you think the players need most or where they are, whether, you know, it's confidence or just a recognising of the environment or the challenge that's there. As a player, you know, I can still remember, and certainly with the Lions, if we won the third test in South Africa back in 1974, we'd won a series for the first time ever in South Africa. Um, and that was the hardest test match I ever played in. Because South Africa, they'd had a team talk from Gary Player. They came. They picked nine forwards. They picked a forward at scrum half. So we knew there was going to be a physicality about it. And the first 40 minutes of that game was the hardest half of rugby I ever played. Um, and we struggled to get out of our half, but nobody, and we had to defend. So it wasn't about winning the game, but we could have lost it in that 40 minutes. And there was a defensive performance of just everybody doing what they had to do to keep South Africa out. Um, and sometimes, and it's where the chemistry comes in, uh, had a really good relationship with Dick Milliken, who was the other centre, uh, but other players, Fergus Slattery, you know, I can still remember them, still see what they were doing. And sometimes you couldn't speak. You you literally got up off the ground and you just had a look and somebody would look back at you and you knew where you had to go next. And there was that intensity of saying somebody was looking after you, mm. but you knew you had to work hard, try and try and make their their job easier. Yeah. And all this, or the majority of this, was without the ball. Um, and that ha that went on for 38 minutes. On the 39th minute, we broke away out of our 22. And um, we got up, uh, and I kicked to the far corner, and we got a line out uh, five metres from their line. Gordon Brown stole it, and uh, we scored. So having been under that intense pressure, we go in at half-time, 6-3 up. And in the second half, we actually then, a couple of fights later, but we, <laughs> we then opened the game up because they couldn't stay at the intensity they'd had. And we end up winning 29 points to six, uh, you know, which, but it was what was around of, I knew I was being looked after and I knew I had to look after the next player. So it's a long-winded way of saying I suppose that when you've got a feeling 
I, I know what it's like in a test match environment that that it's personal. You know, sometimes it comes down to the point about whether what you want to do and how you want to do it and the impact it'll have on somebody else. And if you keep getting that right, the confidence that other people get from your presence actually just grows and the collective confidence grows. Mm. So, you know, when I was talking to the players, different things, you know, I'd, I'd just go out for a walk. I wouldn't write it all down, no. Um, but I'd have very clear in my head because um, sometimes you can say too much, you know, and I've, I have done that in the past. It's just being able in three or four minutes to actually say what, as a coach, what I was feeling. Um, and and some of those, when it's personally, is actually understanding the player, understanding what's got them to that point, which is a lot of other people going out of their way to make things work. And then what you want them to do is go out of their way to make things work in that 80 minutes. So it sort of came from my own experience of the support I got um, at different stages in my life as a player and a coach. You know, um, a father who put £5 in my pocket when I was still at school as an 18-year-old so that I could buy the rounds and and stand at the bar after a game and 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 still buy around with everybody else. Um, what I didn't know until after he died was he he had to walk to work the last two days of the week. Oh, you're gonna have me crying in a minute. Bloody so that hell. motivation is I would never do anything second rate. Wow. And and you know I people came across like that. I always you know have that in the back of my mind. That, that there's a lot of people did a lot of things to actually allow you know me to to be able to to do and and think what what I'd been able to do and and I think um, you know with with players and that understanding that the best teamwork is appreciating that a lot of hard work goes in with a lot of other people. So when you talk then about players having this sense of accountability and responsibility, to each other, Ian. There's two questions that really spring to mind. First one, in, in this modern age of individuality, of people having social media accounts and trying to build their own personal brand, how do you remind them of that responsibility to others? And then secondly, you've got a real talent for almost being able to harness these individuals to get them to work for teams, like Jeremy Guscott's famous comment that you were the greatest influence on his career how do you achieve that balancing act well I've, I've been fortunate to play with and coach some hugely talented players and I think um, it's only it, it's like I say I think it's it's them recognizing that your talent is effect, only effective if it impacts on what everybody can do um, it's only partly individual. If you get that right, then you find that your talent comes into play more and more often because actually the right things are happening around you because of your approach. And the other thing is you respect the people that you play with and you work with. 
Um, and it's same with, you know, I've had some tremendous support staff coaching-wise in, in different teams where we'd make a point of going out for a drink together at, at night. Or when I was at Wasps, we, we used to have afternoon teas on a Thursday and it was all the support staff. And we'd just talk about anything and everything um, to say where we where we were. And it's recognising that talent appears in different ways in different areas and impacts in different ways. But what you do is you respect the differences that people have. Uh, the last thing I would have wanted was a team of all the same. What I actually wanted was accumulation of talent, attitude and, and, and approach that actually was just pulling the most out of each other all the time. And, you know, the support staff, we try to do that. So if there's something not right, you need that out in the open early and you need people to understand that you will genuinely listen and and that on the back of those conversations, so be it with players or a doctor, a physio, a fitness guy, another coach, whoever it is, you're actually trying to get the best environment out and situation, working environment. And in the end, your working environment's a living environment as well that you know, you have to have a smile on your face, I think, when you're coming into work in the morning and into the club to train, whatever it is. Um, and in Alliance Tour, you know, none of that is different. It's as a group. Um, the thing I had to look at and pinch myself sometimes was looking at the quality of talent, but the quality of person that was actually there uh, in the whole mm. group. Uh, and I think if you respect that, then... The pressure of social media now is massive, but um, you have to understand why why you're there, why you've got a reputation or why you've been able to achieve something. And as long as you respect that um, position you're in, uh, then I think you don't take off in a direction which starts to isolate. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile, I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings on to you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can choose from three, six or 12-month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash HPP. 
Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash HPP. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift and many of you may have heard already that in 2023 I decided to give MindLift a go. The neuroscience-based personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own personal neuro coach. And look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using MindLift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better. And I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance. Ian, you're a very modest man, which is why you prefer to talk about your players than to talk about yourself. But I do want to know from your perspective, when you look at the amazing talent in the room, What's your own personal self-talk like? How do you stop yourself being either overawed by the fact you've got the best talent or <laughs> the, the nerves getting to you? Because actually, if you've got the best players in the world, well, it's very easy for people to point fingers at the coach and say the players are good enough. The coach obviously isn't. So what were your techniques for, for making sure you were confident? No, I, th- I think, you know, on a Lions level, you're playing the best opponents as well, you know, Test matches in South Africa and New Zealand don't don't get any better. You know, it's the best, highest quality rugby you can play, and it's the biggest challenge. But it, I think it comes back to that. I I still feel, you know, I've been in a privileged position to be able to to do that and experience that, and um, it's just making sure that I get to know if it's a Lions group, you know, to know the players, to just to talk to them. Not necessarily about rugby, just to just to talk. And, you know, in 2009 we had a um, – we cancelled something because we thought it was the wrong thing to do. But at quarter to one in the morning we'd got everybody in the bar having a drink, just getting to know each other because they'd only been together two days. And in the end – the sort of fancy thing we were going to try and do, we put to one side and just said, actually, let's just have a drink and uh, learn a bit more about each other. You know, I, again, I learned that Sid Miller, who coached me in 1974, he would do that. He he would just stop something and finish it. And again, I think the lessons I learned most was just being able to know that players were being honest and truthful with you about where they felt they were so that I can then respond to them. So they help me. Um, and and then it's just bringing that together, which, which um, you know, when it happens is just a phenomenal feeling. Uh, uh, and I suppose that's how I just, just look at 
look at what I try and do is to is to just be part of that, but know that the players will know I've done everything I can to be able to make sure you know it'll work for them. Um, you know, and it comes back to the five pounds in the pocket. I'm not going to make a shortcut to do something. Uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure the player or the group have the best opportunities to succeed. I'm intrigued by that story you recounted about your dad, Ian. And it, as Jake said, it's an incredibly moving story. Would you tell us a little bit more about the influence of your parents and how what they taught you then, you were still delivering in those lion's dressing rooms under pressure? I was always competitive as a kid. I hated, hated losers at snakes and ladders. So <laughs> what my parents were good at was... A, I was sports mad. My dad was a footballer and an army boxing champion, actually. Uh, he was a regular soldier. So we used to kick a football around all all the time or, or bat and ball. I mean, cricket was my first love as a sport growing up. I learned to take defeat as well, you know, and that's what he said. He said sometimes, he said, you will always be disappointed if you think you're going to win. All. But he said... You prepare to win all the time, uh, and you have to. If you're, if it's not right, you have to understand why it wasn't right, because then the chances of losing get smaller and smaller. Uh, and just having not not losing the competitive edge. And I had a brother, you know, he and I. I have a brother that we played against each other all the time. Even in the house, we'd be. Um, kicking balloons around, having little <laughs> competitions, um, and my mother, you know, my mother was was the same. They went out of the way to make sure I could get to school for ruck sport in a, on a Saturday morning. We didn't have a car, you know. It was it was on the bus or whatever. Um, but actually, they just made it easy for me. I had no excuses, and I had a lot of love. Uh, and support, uh, and my brother would say the same. I'm sure that um, you know we were li- living in a council flat. I went to a secondary modern school, um, but what I had was what we had was two parents who just made things work for us, you know, and we knew that. Um, and on the down times, there was an arm round your shoulder, or you know, there was a way of making a difference. And I suppose that reflects a little bit, I think, in the way maybe still, I, you know, I, I reacted as a as a coach because I had great role models. Wow, wonderful. I just love the thought of, you know, your dad putting five pounds in your pocket in the 1960s and many, many years later, you leading out the Lions with the lessons from your dad all those years before having a tangible impact on the pitch for those players. What what I've really... Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, it's true though, isn't it? I mean, that's the reality and it's very easy for people to go, oh, well, you know, years pass by, but, you know, we carry those things with us, don't we? Yeah, I think you do because I think um, it it gives you structure, and it gives you, um, I think, um, a stability, uh, which which is in you know which is important, um, and and I think if you if you have that, 
I mean, it, you, it means you can keep looking for answers. And that's the bit, as a coach, I probably enjoyed the analysis. You know, I was teaching, um, coming home at night, uh, couldn't get on the telly with a video recorder till about 11 o'clock at night, till I made sure my wife had seen all the programmes she wanted to see. <laughs> but sitting down and doing analysis and, and just looking at things, you know, and, and things that uh, you could do, you knew would, would make a difference, where it was, um, I felt, just so, so important that, that you know, you're, you're back to people who were looking for answers all the time. And as a, growing up and um, even in that environment as a coach, that is a fascination mm. that I still have. You know, I still look at the game now or where it is, I'm trying to look at where it's going next and um, which areas or which players are actually going to change the way teams can play. Uh, and at the moment, I am fascinated and enjoying tremendously Pat Lamb coaching Bristol Bears because they have changed the game. And he has got a group of players who have totally bought into it. So they're playing collectively a game which actually is challenging everyone else and is challenging the game at the moment. Mm. Uh, and that's what I love. Uh, Pat and I, I know Pat well and we, we speak or exchange texts on a regular basis. But it's, it's being in that environment. Um, um, we, t we talk about the Northampton environment of, you know, uh, I stopped them kicking for a while altogether because we just had this idea that if we could outpass our opponents, we'd beat them. Um, so we were talking about 300-plus passes a game. But, of course, then just that, <laughs> all it meant was it meant we had to be super fit because if you want to pass to somebody, somebody's got to be there to catch it. And the more we looked at it, the more we're looking at saying, right, all our fitness and all our work and all our practices – have to say, where's the next man? And it wasn't about the player with the ball. Correct. It was about the player next to him or the player that had to be next to him. Otherwise, everything didn't work. Brilliant. So can you tell us, then, Ian, about the art of creativity? Because where did you go to to look for ideas that were outside of the box to challenge convention when you were coaching as well, then? I talked to a, a lot of other coaches just, I, I've always been interested in other sports. You know, you're reading books about other coaches. One of the books uh, early on, that, a bit, and it was Derek Grant, actually, who I coached with with Scotland, had found a book from John Wooden, the American yeah. college basketball coach. It's a fantastic book. It's about just doing this getting the things that are going to make the difference and it again it just fires ideas and you know Derek uh, Jim Telfer and other coaches had a great coach as a player at Headingley who was a university lecturer but could get things over really well Bernard White so I've got names at all the different things that put ideas in my head or got my thinking going to actually pull things together and then take it on in a different way. Uh, and I I still believe you can't copy anybody, 
because you don't know what they're thinking and what's gone in behind it. Because everybody's got their own journey and their own pathway of in, of of understanding. Uh, but what you can do is take some of the things that they've got and put it in your own thoughts. And sometimes you'll cast it away, um, and it, you know something doesn't work. But something does, which changes your own perception about what is possible and where you can go next. And that only comes out of, I think, sharing ideas and being very open with 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 people and and um, and just trying to acquire knowledge in in different ways from different areas so that you can then use it. And, you know, I've shared all my coaching notes and anything after Alliance Tour, I would share with the other international coaches, you know, because it might just flag up something that they think about or they can use. They won't use it the same way as me and they won't do the same practices because the background thinking, the pathway thinking is completely unique um, but that's the fascination for me is just being able to have the opportunity to draw on that and then push my own thinking in my own direction and and then trying to put that into very straightforward simple things that you can then put over to players I love that I mean I'm a I'm a father of two very small children seven and five and I have a five-year-old who is so generous, and you wouldn't believe. I have a daughter who's the total polar opposite, and I keep on trying to explain <laughs> to her, generosity is at the heart of everything good. And she's not quite <laughs> understood it yet, but that's exactly what you're yeah. describing there. And I, when I sit and listen to you talk, I know we've, you know we've spoken about rugby and we've spoken about winning and cultures and things. Everything that you're describing, though, gets broken down to one thing, which is personal relationships. And I think all too often in this world of mobile phones and allowing others to have conversations on our behalf or talking over WhatsApp and trying to guess what they really mean with what they're saying, really you're a firm advocate of making sure that it's a personal relationship. That's where the magic is, I think. Yeah, I think the difference is people. I've always believed that. If you have the right people right with the right approach, you come to the right processes. I don't th- uh, uh, now people wouldn't agree with me uh, and everybody wouldn't you know some are process led and we'll look for the right people to suit the process I would never do that you know I think if you get the chemistry right then the feeding off each other actually you get the right way of working and you get to the process which which makes the difference uh, and it also, I think, gives you that flexibility. One of the early things I've always said to the Lions players is, you must arrive here with an open mind. You know, you've all had a pathway of learning and a, uh, a, and they've come from, you know, whether it's Limerick or Edinburgh, Cardiff or uh, Northampton, Leicester, wherever. Every person's experience to that point is their own, but they've got, all that integrated knowledge and experience that comes out of that, that if they can bring that, put it on the table, but add to it an open mind so that the pathway that's coming from somebody else and the knowledge and experience they've got starts to really combine. And you then say, right, if we feel this is the best way, you don't close your mind and say, oh, no, it'll never work. Actually, you agree that that's the best way. And what you then do is put your own talent 
and expertise in to say, right, I'm going to make the difference to make sure that works. And I've got an open mind. So I will do things and I'm prepared to do things differently because collectively we'll be able to take the next step. And that, if you like, is one of the things that encouraged me and um, I enjoyed so much about the Lions with with that opportunity for that sort of environment. So if you were to build on that then, Ian, what would you say would be the characteristics of a high-performing person from all the environments you've been into? We speak about open-mindedness. What other characteristics are consistently present? Honest. I think you've got to be honest with your opinions. And I think appreciative. I just think that respect of others and respecting the differences you know, don't make it an argument, make it a discussion. What you come out of it then is the outcomes become stronger. I think don't be selfish, that unselfishness, uh, but also uh, you have that competitive instinct, which is there, an attitude which will make you, almost make you to make that last step to make the difference when it matters and and that you wouldn't think twice about doing it uh, you know in the past i've called it the test match animal the ability under pressure to do the right thing sometimes it's not the thing you know we talk about world-class basics sometimes it's not the thing that you've been picked to do but actually the demand requires you to do something at that point. The best and the thing that still sits in my mind more than anything was Jeremy Guscott's drop goal in the second test in uh, South Africa in 1997. The lead up to that was a group of players who did the right thing and you wouldn't say any of them that was their outstanding expertise because the rock that turned the ball over on the halfway line was won by Jeremy Guscott. Now, Jeremy Guscott was probably only ever in five rocks in his career, but he, when it mattered in that rock to turn the ball over, that's what he did. And in fact, Matt Dawson was still thinking, I think, that South Africa were winning the ball because the ball came out and Keith Wood, as the hooker then, plays scrum half, kicks the ball long into the 22 and chases and then forces a line out, which we win. We then drive as a, as a pack and nobody said as a pack we would ever do that to South Africa. And then the ball comes out again and it needs somebody running hard at the line. That's Gregor Townsend. Gregor Townsend's not renowned for running hard physical lines, but that's what was needed. And from that breakdown... Matt Dawson passes to Jeremy Guscott and drops the goal. And, and to me, that, that to me sums up saying, here, this is what a Tessach animal looks like. This is what the game looks like when you've got people under pressure making the decision that's going to make the difference. Yes, they could do it. They weren't into the team specifically to do that. But when it mattered, they got the right decision right because they knew it would make the difference and it won us a test match and you had to create this culture and this environment Ian in a really short space of time how differently did you work with the Lions compared to the clubs that you coached at where you might have 
weeks of pre-season and then you can over time create a culture that might take two or three years to come to fruition. You had a matter of weeks and not only that, you had a matter of weeks with the best players who are usually international level taught to hate each other and a few weeks earlier were knocking each other's heads off. So what's the trick to creating that culture but really quickly and for a lot of the business people listening to this or the teachers that love to listen to this or the other professional sports people that download this podcast, I think there's a lot of learning for them in this space. Well, I think the big plus the Lions have is the badge. It's got the four countries on it. Uh, I think it's still, even in this professional era, the biggest badge they can put on their jersey. So that means a lot because it then means that they have to look after it. They have to make it better. Uh, And what they put in, they know... They have a legacy that they're following, you know, and I've always said to players, you never own the jersey. It's yours for a short amount of time. But what you do with it makes all the difference in the world. A bit like uh, your kids. And, well, and, and I think the great thing in 97, you know, you go back to that and it's exploded since really, was people wanted to wear the jersey. 30,000 people went out to South Africa to watch a test series that nobody thought the Lions would win. You know, the jerseys were sold out. Adidas didn't make enough jerseys, and they had to make some more. You know, and I said to them, look, people want to wear the jersey because of what you're doing in it. They don't want to wear something that's second best or is irrelevant and that you don't think is important. They think it's important because you think it's important. And and that impact of other people being drawn in. And that Lions environment for supporters now has just got stronger and stronger. Mm. You know, they look after each other. They talk to each other. When you're wearing a Lions shirt as a spectator or as a player, it doesn't matter where you come from. You know, you're a Lion. And, and I think that sort of involvement and that legacy is something which is, I think, really important to keep hold of in any, in any group, any, any team, any badge. But with the Lions, I suppose it's shown more because of, you know, those, the four countries that um, only come together every four years. But you're back to people being in an environment they want to be in and then trying to change that environment or develop it for the better. And then you know the next group that come four years' time will want to pick that up, do the same, and then move it on again. So you could probably travel to the other side of the world on your own for a Lions tour. If you're wearing the jersey, you're part of a family. Yes, without a doubt. An interesting story in a way. After 2009 tour, uh, we did a charity sort of evening just open at, at Wasps, uh, just a, an evening and just talking about the Lions tour and things. And there was people from all different clubs uh, there for the evening. At the end of it, an elderly lady came up to me and just said, I want to say thank you. And I thought she meant for the evening. Um, uh, And I said, oh, I'm pleased you've enjoyed the evening. So she said, no, not for the evening, she said, for the Lions. And I I, I was sort of looked quizzically at her. She said, "Uh, my husband died in February and, and we'd spent four years saving up. We always wanted as a pair to go on the on a Lions tour. Uh, unfortunately, he he died, and the family persuaded me to still go because it's something 
they felt their father would still have wanted her to do. She said, I went to South Africa for three weeks. And she said, in that three weeks, I was never alone. She said, people from different countries, whatever. She said, I wore a Lions jersey. I was something I was looked after and I was part of something that I felt was really supportive and really belonged to. And she said, God willing, if I'm still alive in 2013, I'll be in Australia as well. Wow. And did you feel that responsibility when you were coaching that team that that's what the jersey and that's what the badge stands for? Because I think it's important to put it into context for players that are in that rugby bubble, that this is more than just a game of rugby. No, I think the impact it had on, you know, you go back to being a player that I never anticipated being a Lion, to be honest. Um, and then when I did, it had an impact. Those were the times you're away for four months, you know, so um, I had all sorts of things. We had to put the mortgage on hold because I wasn't getting paid. So I was actually losing losing money. Uh, my wife was working, but we had to try and make it make it work. And, you know, I'm lucky as well that I've got a wife that, that has been fantastic for me. In, and you're back to the support that talk to my parents and you know I've got a fantastic wife as well who's just um, allowed me to do it and you know when it mattered being there to talk to and and I think that all that is um, key. So can I ask you about the role of support and people around you then Ian because you've been an assistant but famously you've had some quite charismatic, powerful assistants, like Jim Telfer comes to mind as an obvious example of that. What do you look for in an assistant when you're recruiting for that role? I think you're back to respecting the differences. <laughs> that you want something that adds to your thinking. And In rugby, it's quite easy sometimes because obviously you've got forwards and backs and defence and kicking and so So it goes back to 97. But we, for the first time, because uh, it only ever used to be a manager and a couple of coaches. Uh, the game had gone professional, so I'd I'd learned a few. The year before, I'd been allowed to go out to South Africa to watch um, the Test Series. They were playing against the All Blacks in 1996. And at that time, I, I spent a week with the All Blacks, just from their perspective, looking at all the things that, were needed to tour South Africa and be successful in South Africa. We picked up a, a lot of different, a lot of different things. I did a report and we, we looked at what we needed. Uh, and one of the things they said was just um, looking after all your own, not just people but equipment. So we were completely self-contained equipment-wise, and actually we'd got extra so that. We could train in one place and the other kit was all being moved on the road to the next place so that everywhere we went, the right equipment, the right training field was always set up for the players. So there was a familiarity and we weren't reliant on things that could go wrong. A very good friend of mine, Dick Best, who I'd coached with, said, oh, look, there's a good coach who's been in South Africa now coaching at Harlequins. Uh, have a word with him because I was looking for an analyst. So we wanted to have an for the first time. Um, and Andy Keast, who, who then went, was brilliant. He was a coach, 
but he was an analyst and he was fantastic with the analysis so we could pull things apart in different ways who'd got Dave Allred who did the kicking you know specific kicking skills because we knew the kicking in the game was going to be crucial to us winning a test match would things like that for physio come looking at the fitness and how we were doing it as well as the support the support staff you know Fran Cotton was a fantastic manager but he'd also played in South Africa so you'd got somebody with that instinctive rugby brain that you could pick or would say the or just the other thing that would just help you clarify something whatever it was so when you've got a group like that where the intent is the same from everybody but the, there's differences in knowledge there's differences in understanding and an approach that you draw out so much more you back to collective intelligence i suppose but it's the differences I think, and it's respecting the differences. Brilliant. I think it's so interesting. So do you like to be challenged by your coaches around you? Is that important for you? Yeah, and the players. Um, you know, when I coached Scotland, John Rutherford coming through, we'd always got different ideas. He'd always come up with a, a new idea or something to try, which we'd then try and put in. Now, sometimes we try and change something and it would take us three games before we got it right. So we wouldn't introduce it until we were happy in training that we'd actually got it right. And then we'd put it in the game. But we'd had three weeks of knowing there was something down the line that we were going to introduce. And so, and I'd come up with something. And then what it did was it encouraged. So different players would come up with different thoughts or little moves or little tactic, whatever. Now, some you wouldn't use, but others so all the time with this ongoing development, tactically, of things that challenged us to try and make something work, but make it make it different. I think it's I think it's really fascinating for people listening to this, and I know it's a, it's a rugby conversation, but there are so many takeaways for people in every walk of life. I'd like to share something that we haven't actually done on the podcast before, but I was talking to one of your former players ahead of this interview, Ian, and. I didn't ask them anything specific other than, hey, I'm, I'm interviewing Sir Ian McGeehan today for the High Performance Podcast. And they left me this voice note, totally out of the blue, which I would love to share with you and share with the people listening to the podcast, because I think it really takes us inside a lion's dressing room. And not only does it take us inside the dressing room in terms of how brutal it is to be on a lion's tour, but I think how important emotion was for the team that you put together and how you drove the emotional side of your players to perform. So um, have a listen to this. I'd love to get your reaction. This is huh. Ugo Monia. You did leave a voice message, but in 2009, after we lost the second test, which meant we lost the series, it, I mean, it's probably gone down in history as the most physical, one of the greatest games of rugby ever played. But our injury toll was massive. We had Jamie Roberts, who had dislocated his wrist, his tour was over. No. Brian O'Driscoll knocked himself unconscious, his tour was over. Um, Adam Jones, our tight head prop, dislocated his shoulder, his tour was over. Gethin Jones, I think, fractured his cheekbone, his tour was over. Ron O'Gara got a massive concussion, his tour was over. Simon Shaw, who'd been on two previous tours, um, that was also his first um, test match for the British and Irish Lions, and he was man of the match, and he did the post-match interviews crying. I didn't play in that test match, but I walked into the changing room, and... 
I've never, ever been in a more depressing changing room in all my life. Um, you're not part of the team. You didn't play that day. You walk in, what can you say? I walked in, Adam Jones, they're trying to relocate his shoulder back into his socket. He's screaming. Brian O'Driscoll's walking around. Like, mate, don't know what day of the week it is. Jamie Roberts is there having his uh, shoulder treated. Gethin Jones is saying, Ron O'Gara, you know, I guess he probably had one of the moments of that game. Um, he sat in the corner with his eye socket. I mean, his eyes so swollen. He sat there with an ice pack on his face. Um, you know, what do you say? How do you console these guys? How do you find the words? And Simon Shaw just walks in and, and he's crying. And then I remember just Geech. He, he, he made... He, he's always got the right words, but even he struggled that day. He was just crying. And then we had a big night out that night just to get out of our system. And then the next day we all met together in the morning after breakfast. And he just spoke about how proud he was of the team. And then he started crying. And it was just like, like I said in my previous text, he's like everyone's granddad on tour. He's old, he knows what it is to be a lion, he was a lion himself, um, been involved in the game for a long time, won lots of medals, and yeah, I always think about the composition of a coaching staff, we had Sean Edwards, like this mad, this mad man, you know, all like passion and energy, you know, Warren Gatlin, enthusiastic, and he, um, Geach was almost like, he was the tonic to those two. Because um, he's got such a great history with the Lions and a great emotional connection with us. You know, he's he's certainly a McGeekin. Um, so he's respectable all of us. And when you're, you know, it's never great to see any man cry. But when they're a bit older than you and you're looking at them and thinking that could be that's that could be my dad. Like that's my dad stood in front of me crying. It mate cut you. So so yeah. He's an emotional guy. Hugo Monya, along with his 11-month-old daughter, trying to get in on the act as well. He describes you as granddad, which I think you have to take as a, <laughs> as a compliment. But yeah. when he says at the end there, that's my dad. That's my dad stood in front of me. And you were in tears and the players were in tears. And it's clearly, clearly still resonating with Hugo all these years later. How do you reflect when you hear when you hear that? Well, I hope it was well, I think it's something significant for Hugo that, he got the Lions understood and that night, I think in the dressing room, all I said was, we have to leave this tour on a winning note. We have to leave a winning Lions jersey for the next group who are going to put it on. I said, we're not training for the next four days. Um, uh, they went on safari or went with their families. I said, don't want to see you. I said, all I want to see is you come back on Wednesday morning and were preparing to win a Lions Test match. And they went away, didn't see any of them. I went back to Joburg with my wife, and we just had a quiet two or three days. And when they turned up on Wednesday morning ready to train, we had to make nine changes to the team because of injuries and other things. But they all understood. They'd all been part of the process of the way we wanted to play. Um and somebody who'd come flown over one of the Lions committee uh, board had come and watched the session on the Wednesday and said, uh, I can't believe that this team hasn't won a test match. Says they just don't look like it. And it was one of the best 
sessions that I was ever involved with with them. And um, with all the changes and everything else, of course, they then went out on the Saturday and equaled the record score against South Africa in the third in the third test. Hugo scored his brilliant try from R22 with the intercept. Simon Shaw had become a giant. I mean, he was fantastic. It's nice just to, you know, hear somebody like Hugo, just, just that importance to him, that feeling of the environment, which I hope was, was positive. And, yeah, you do wear your heart on your sleeve. But if you permit me, and I think having listened to Hugo's comments there, I think it's a great illustration of that famous quote that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's the way he describes you is that he's not talking about your expertise as a rugby coach. He's talking about you as a person and your humanity and your decency and, and your ability to demonstrate emotional intelligence. If you were to apportion your success down to how much of it was down to technical expertise and how much was down to your very essence of being a good person... What would you attribute that proportion as? No, I think you need good people. I'm biased. I think rugby produces good people because you're in such a physical, demanding, dangerous environment in some respects that you get a response that you need that support. It is the ultimate support when you've got a a good rugby team, a good group of people together. It's the ultimate support. And I think it, it does bring out the best. And I and I think if you have good people collectively, you know, as support staff and, and as players, then I think good people make great things happen. Oh, it's been so good to sit and have this conversation. And one of my favourite moments from watching you talk to the players over the years is when you say to them, one day you'll see each other in the street you won't say a word, you'll just exchange a look and you will know what you went through. And I think when we hear Hugo talking about his experience with you there, I think um, that's exactly what will happen when you bump into him in the street, isn't it? It is. I mean, every time we do, I mean, you think it builds a relationship that doesn't go away. As I said, I feel very privileged to be part of that environment which creates those relationships and which... Still working. Yeah, Hugo and I will always have that little look between us so Ian we're going to finish as we always do with our with our quick fire questions first of all the one absolute unacceptable that you will not tolerate in and around your environment be it work or home dishonesty what are your three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into Ian have the right attitude care for what you can do for others to get the best out of them uh, and they remember that that the collective is far bigger and more important than the individual. What advice would you give to a teenage Ian just starting out in life, apart from spending the five pounds well from you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Stick with stick with your sport. It'll challenge you, but uh, you get a hell of a lot from it. How did you react to your greatest failure? I rang my wife. What did she say? And we talked. We talked through it. She said. Just what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? And I had a conversation where we worked out uh, and I had it clear and she said, you know, never uh, question what you want to do. Just understand what makes the difference. She sounds very wise. 
Yeah, she is. And what was that after? What was the failure? When we lost the first test in um, Australia in 1989, my, my first test match as a coach. Did you win the series? Yes. Thank you, Mrs. McGeehan. <laughs> <laughs> Are you happy? Yes. How important is legacy to you? Very. I think if you do things worthwhile, then you're passing on things which allow others to be better. And uh, the final question, your one golden rule for people listening to this podcast to live a high-performance life? Appreciate the people and the environment that you have and can create. You are a man who's built his reputation in a, in a brutal sport, but actually I think the reason for your success in such a brutal sport is your ability to understand the heart of the people that are in and around you. So we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast for the last hour or so. And, you know, you've been generous enough to share 50, 60 years worth of learning about life um, that the people listening to this podcast can now learn from themselves. And we are so appreciative of that. Now, my pleasure, Jake, Damien, I've uh, really enjoyed it. I can bore anybody about rugby, you know that. <laughs> oh, you haven't done it. It's been incredible. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Uh, pleasure. Damien. Jake. Right, I've made so many notes during, <laughs> during that <laughs> conversation. You can't copy other people. World-class basics I love because I think quite often people, people will sort of... Um, They'll discount a high-performance lifestyle or they'll discount high achievement because it feels too complicated. When you break it down to world-class basics, then that's something anyone can achieve. I think that's absolutely correct, Jake. I think when people talk about marginal gains or the 1%, I think what that ignores is just get the basics right, first of all. Don't look for shortcuts. As Ian said, just get your basics to such a high standard and then you can start looking at little add-ons. But not the other way round. Mm. I also loved it when he said that structure allows for exploration. Because I, I've i always sort of thought that being too structured prevents you from exploring because you're too single-minded. But if you get it right and you have the structure in place, so like, let's say, you know the things that are going to make your business or your class or your team or your friends tick and operate to a great level, then that's done, right? So you've got that. Then yeah. is the time to go, okay, with that structure... How much can we push each little area, each element of this relationship? A bit like Johnny Wilkinson. What was his number one rule for life? Explore. It yeah, allows exactly. you, but you explore from that base. Yeah, I think that's it. The, 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 to break the rules, you need to know what the rules are in the first place. And I think once you have them, in, uh, and then that's where, like you say, you can start to look for little add-ons or start to bend and shape them, where if you're curious about it, how do we improve it and add on it? I remember reading years ago an interview with uh, Jack White from the band The White Stripes, and he was talking about when they used to perform um, in, or, or go and practice recording. They would create rules for themselves. They're, they could only play instruments with a certain chord or certain types of instruments. And the idea was that having that structure in place allowed them to then find creative ways to still make a really impressive sound. And I... I'd, that comes back to that phrase we used at the start of this chat. It's about chemistry and physics. You need to know how all the parts work before you can start to look at how they work together. And I thought that's what Ian was really powerful at explaining. I also enjoyed him talking about the fact that to really drum home the importance of being a lion, you only borrow the jersey. And I think we can we can apply that to any part of life. Like, we only borrowed Ian for an hour to have that conversation. So if you don't make the most of it in that hour, it's gone 
you only borrow your kids for the first 18 years of their lives. After that, they're flying off, they're doing their own thing. Every single element of your life, from the house you live in to the dog that you feed before you go to bed, I think it's all borrowed. Yeah, I think that's really powerful and quite a spiritual idea that it challenges them to say, well, how are you making any situation you inherit better? What do you add? What, what do you do that enhances it? I think that's an incredibly powerful way to, to view legacy. Hello, Graham. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us. So we love to do this. We love to sort of speak to people that have reached out to us, you know, through listing and, and stuff on the podcast. Um, and we got your message a couple of days ago and it wasn't one that we could read and thank you and move on. We had to get you on to talk about it. So thanks ever so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Um Look, let's just get straight on with it, Graham. For people listening to this, can you just explain some of the story that you shared with us, first of all? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people go through times probably that aren't great. I think, like, for me, I lost both my parents relatively fairly young, losing my dad at a young age, had my stepdad, but then losing my mum a bit later on and then sort of having to deal with that I don't think I really dealt with either of those emotions properly at the time I think I just went through a thoroughly like a I'm just gonna work and focus on work and focus on anything else other than not trying to channel those I think that's kind of what I what I did instead of like trying to cope and go through the like the mechanism of understanding the feelings I'm going through and how like you should just sort of deal with them rather than trying to ignore them and I think that's pretty much what I did. I think when I listened to Stephen Bartlett's on, on, on here, I think there was a lot that I was just like, yeah, this is sort of like what happened to me. We, we grew up in like an area which was like fairly, it was fairly nice. Um, and But we were always like the poorest people on the street. And I was like always the poorest kid at school. I was like a smelly kid who had like trousers, which were like way up my ankles. And like, so for me, like being like, in that sort of like, you don't really come from money, you have to really work to get to what like a, a level playing field for those people. Maybe like I think appreciate now that that journey. And then like through losing both my parents, I think it's like you just sort of have to go through the emotions of having to deal with that and understanding that sort of you're not really owed anything by life. The fact that we're here is something incredible anyway. And when these things do happen, there's no point being angry or oh this is ridiculous why is this happening to me I think having that mentality can like just shut you down and like can make you lose focus over the long term so I think I sort of went on a journey going through those emotions and then I got to a point where I left my old job and I wasn't really just wasn't as passionate focused anymore like it wasn't if I look back on that time which is about two and a half years ago not the same person as I am now and I don't really identify as well with that person I think I just completely switched off I completely just lost care for anything and what I was doing so I sort of like came to like a a peak where I just gone this is it or like a trough rather I think I started 2020 going right this is a new year I'm going to really focus I'm going to really try I really want to make a difference and then obviously we went into a lockdown and I was like, okay, well, I still want to do these things. And I think we then had the our second child, which I, which I delivered, which was which was terrifying. It was terrifying, and uh, I was going through like those emotions 
And I think something just changed. It was whilst I was listening to this podcast. I think I just started going, well, what, like, what's it mean to be a high performer? And what's it mean to be successful? And like, what's it mean to do those things whilst also being a parent, whilst also being a good friend, whilst also trying to like do stuff unilaterally, not just being super career focused. There are loads of people who have lots of things that happen which are far worse and they end up doing stuff which is far greater. The fact that I'm like a a white male who was who was brought up in like the south of England, I'm already like three or four steps ahead of other people. You look what's happening to half the England football team over this week and that all the abuse they're getting. That's that's high performance. The fact they're able to then get up and go, you know what, we'll deal with this and move on. So was there a particular podcast that resonated with you then, Graham? It's hard. I listened to the Joe Malone one the other day and I was like, wow, a Joe Malone story. We just hear that her cancer. The, the way she was able to quantify, yeah, I've got cancer, but you know what? Actually, like on a long enough period, it's actually things are going to get better. It's like running a marathon, right? I've run a couple of marathons and you get to like mile 10, mile 12, you go, this sucks. I hate this. You go, you know what? It's going to be over soon. So her, her ability to quantify and move on with that I really like, I was like, yeah, I agree with this. McConaughey's one is just insane. The way he's able to articulate that we're never now. For me, it was like, yeah, right. There's no point in me going, I want to get this biggest deal ever or I want to get to this stage of my life. I think it's about appreciating that journey. Brilliant. Well, look, you mention all these well-known names and then you come on here and you drop some wisdom as good as any of them. Look, Graham, it's so nice for us to hear from people that have, genuinely been impacted by the high performance podcast because that is that's what this is all about so um just massive thanks really for coming on and, and sharing what you've learned no yeah no thank you guys you know what damien um having that conversation with graham it's a reminder isn't it uh of the fact that i suppose when we first started this podcast i thought certain people would like the sports guests certain people would like the business guests and and he kind of names almost everyone. And I've, I was just reading a message that came in on on um, on the reviews on Apple. This is from Amanda Boucher, and she says, "I thought the podcast today was awesome." So she was listening to the Mary Portas episode, and then she goes on to say, "I really also love Johnny Wilkinson, Toto Wolf, and Gareth Southgate." So she's naming three big sports names along with Mary Portas, and she also says that she's learning to merge her business side of her with her heart and her spiritual side, which is encouraging and leading her forwards. Um, and, and I think a lot of people are getting a lot from the Mary Portas conversation about friendship and kindness and the fact the world's changing. But I just love how sort of eclectic people's listening habits are on this podcast. Well, listening to that feedback there, Jake, reminds me of some of the conversations we've had when we've been sat having a bite to eat and talking about what our favourite episode is. And inevitably, we end up mentioning virtually all of them, you know, because I think that, like you say, there's people that come at it that maybe you've never heard of Mary Portas or you're not aware of who Stephen Bartlett might be, but then you give it a go and you find that they're dropping pearls of wisdom as much as Matthew McConaughey or Gareth Southgate. And that's one of the things that we often ask for, isn't it? Just just come at this with an open mind, just give it a go. It might not be for you, but at least you've come at it with the right approach to try and gain something from it. And there was a nice message that came in as well from Kay Patel, 
72 saying, I don't know how these guys do it, but of all the podcasts out there, of all the options and competition for one's time, this is by far the best podcast you can come across. I've learned so much as a man, an individual and a parent from listening, not only to the guests, but also the analysis that follows afterwards. If you're a parent, this is essential listening to counter the peer pressure you face. Enjoy the journey and don't worry about the destination. How often do we forget that as parents because we get caught up in the mouse wheel? If only these guys were around in my early career, they've got an uncanny ability of making legends sound normal and engage at the most basic level of humanity, warts and all. Jake and Damien, we salute you. Well, I think I'm the one that gets on the basic level. That's where, that's where I'm at. What I love from this is that, again, it's someone who is taking all the things they're learning from all these incredible people and applying them to parenthood. And maybe we should just have a quick mention, Damien, for the incredible numbers of people that that come to us and talk to us about how it's impacted their parenting. Because I can't think of a more valuable impact for us than that, if I'm honest. No, exactly. I think in many ways, this podcast is like a baby for us, isn't it? That you sort of, that you nurture it, you try and develop it, and then you send it out into the world, hoping that it can stand on its own two feet. So... When we hear feedback like that, that people have been it, that are finding value in it, it feels like the reaction you have when you hear that your child has done something at school. You feel, I feel immeasurable pride as I know that you do. So it means an awful lot that somebody has taken the time to feedback. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good point that actually as well, because, you know, Damien and I aren't sitting here with massive egos trying to own all these conversations. Like if you work in a school, please feel free to go on YouTube and clip all the interviews up into an assembly for your kids. If you work in a business and you want to just ping the podcast around to your colleagues or you want to take certain nuggets or snippets from them and put them together, you know, feel free to do that. I think it's important, Damien, that, that like you say, people don't just come and listen. They allow this podcast to become whatever it needs to be for them. Yeah, definitely. Like like that Robin Van Persie clip, the conversation he had with Shaquille, his son, uh, the amount of teachers that I've shared that with and that they've used it to stage an assembly around to get kids to understand that moaning and pointing the finger and blaming is a pathway to being the loser that Robin describes as opposed to taking responsibility is is the mindset of a winner. And the earlier we can understand that and therefore uh, start to adopt it, the better it is for everybody. So I'm wholeheartedly agreeing with you, Jake, that if people can use it in a really practical way, that gives us an awful lot of uh, satisfaction. Love it. Um, And if you're thinking of ways that you can get more, of course, from the podcast, one of them is to sign up to the High Performance Circle. It's totally free, okay? All you need to do is go to the High Performance Podcast dot com uh click on the circle you'll get an invite and you will access podcast episodes before you'll hear them here there's some brilliant keynote speeches from people on there as well inspiring little short talks from people that have done amazing things um and there's newsletters and all kinds of other stuff will keep on appearing on the circle so the high performance podcast.com Click on the circle if you want even more from the podcast. Of course, huge thanks to Damien, to Will, to Hannah, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio. Um, And most of all, to all of you. In fact, someone sent me a message this week very quickly, Damien, saying, why do you always... He said, why do you thank people at the end? We should be thanking you rather than you thanking us. But to answer that, the, the reason why we always say thank you to you at the end is because when you make a podcast, right, you just record it and stick it up on a on a 
podcast place. If people don't go and listen to it and then talk about it and share it and, and stuff, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, we're not on BBC One at seven o'clock on a Friday night, right? This podcast isn't rammed down people's faces. They have to find it, actively look for this podcast. And when you're getting a million people a month actively searching for something and listening to it, I think that deserves thanks, Damien, don't you? Massively. It's a choice. People are making a choice in a world of a proliferation of choices. The fact that they choose us is something that's uh, that's incredibly humbling. And therefore, yeah, definitely thank you to everybody that makes that choice. There you go. What a nice way to end. Um, and I will just finish by saying thank you very much for listening <laughs> to the High Performance Podcast. Have a great day. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.